The Bain Free Radio Hour. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour. It's a pleasure to have you along. I am Bain Associate Editor and your podcast host, David Afshirod. This week, we bring you DJ Butler's interview with Tim Akers about Akers' latest novel for Bain, Wraithbound. Readers may know Akers from the two Nightwatch novel he's written for Bain, which can best be described as Men in Black at the Ren Fair. Well, Wraithbound is an altogether different animal, a dark, epic fantasy with serious stakes. Still, we're sure fans of the Nightwatch series will find much to like, and for those unfamiliar with Akers' work, we're excited to present this new voice in fantasy. But first, the news. It's almost May, and that means that the mass markets have hit bookstore shelves. Let's take a look. First up is Aurora Borealis Bridge by Jane Linskold. Summoned to Overwhere, Peg, Meg, and Teg, along with the Inquisitors Zirak, Grunwald, and Varys, will uncover the startling truth about what lies on the other side of the Aurora Borealis Bridge, a truth that holds the secret of Overwhere and that will change all their lives forever. Next up, we have A New Clan by David Weber and Jane Linskold. Freshly home from an internship on Manticore, teenage Stephanie Harrington is up to her eyebrows in trouble. In trying to get enough proof to get the understaff authorities of her pioneer planet to act, Stephanie will be called upon to attempt things she never imagined doing. And The Jigsaw Assassin by Catherine Acero. When a serial killer plot points to the royalist political party, Major Bajan must return to the capital city, and there she must face her most deadly foe yet, interstellar politics. That's Aurora Borealis Bridge by Jane Linskold, A New Clan by David Weber and Jane Linskold, and The Jigsaw Assassin by Catherine Acero, all available now in mass market paperback. And that's it for the news. Hello, this is uh, DJ uh, Dave Butler. I'm here with Tim Akers to talk about his exciting new novel, Wraithbound. It's out now in trade paper and all your favorite ebook formats. DRM free when you buy them at Bain.com, uh, of course. Tim was born in deeply rural North Carolina, the only son of a theologian. He moved to Chicago for college, where he lives with his wife. He splits his time between databases, uh, fountain pens, and fortunately for us, writing fantasy novels. Maybe, maybe he writes them all with fountain pens. I'll have to ask him that. Uh, no, okay, very good. And that's, uh, that's like a Christopher Paolini and uh, Neil Gaiman kind of trick. Um, uh, Wraithbound is uh, his ninth novel. It is the first in a very exciting Sanderson-esque uh, epic fantasy series uh, published uh, by Bain. Uh, Tim, welcome. Howdy. So, um, what is it you're writing with uh, these fountain pens if it's not your novels then? I actually did write my first two books um, by hand, longhand, which was not, it's not a good idea. Um, I do most of my brainstorming um, by hand. Uh, my brain works differently when I'm, when I'm 
writing things out by hand, uh, and it, it helps me. It's I'm a little better able to be creative when I'm when I'm doing that. Um, so I have notebook after notebook of just me talking myself through um, cosmology and, and plotting. And whenever I run into a problem, uh, I'll stop, you know, the typing portion of my my writing, and I'll go back and uh, pull out an, a notebook and just sit and, and brainstorm my way through the issue. Um, so it's equal parts therapy and, and uh, creative storytelling. So do you feel like the different tactile experience changes the way you think like you access more brainstormy parts of your psyche by, by doing that? Yeah, absolutely. It's it's definitely the mechanical action of, of writing longhand and being physically involved with uh, with the words. Uh, changes changes the way my brain fires. I can feel it. Um, so yeah, there's definitely a definitely a difference there. Yeah, that's interesting. I uh, am embarrassingly forgetting the name of the book right now. David Afsharad recommended a book to me, and, and I read it kind of late last year, which is a history of word processing, uh, which had a lot of sort of vignette style history. Bain came up actually. Jerry Pornell kind of was about a page and a half about Jerry. Um, uh, but one of the sort of themes of the book is these, this question, this argument, whether I know we weren't planning on having this discussion we were talking about Wraith Mound, but uh, whether it's really even the same activity when you change the tool that much. Right. So, you know, does writing with a word processor, um, I mean, it gives you so much fluidity to be able to go back and instantly change something. Right. Or, or step beyond word processors to something like Scrivener, where you can systematically change the order of things by, you know, checking something in the menu, right? Like, is that maybe on some level, not even the same process? Yeah, it definitely, it definitely changes the way that you you do the process. I'm old enough that, um, like, I didn't start with normal word processors. I started in DOS, and mm. um, not even DOS, actually, it was basic. Uh, and so yeah, there's definitely been a change in, in the way that we're able to approach the writing process. And like, for me, Scrivener is a line too far. I, I really feel... Mm that you begin to lose something about the, the effort or the labor of writing when you can switch things around so easily. Most of the folks that I, I'm, no offense to Scrivener folks, but most of the folks that I know who do Scrivener, um, they spend way too much time fiddling mm. and not enough time writing. And I think that's one of the, the nice things about, about longhand is that you really spend, there's so much labor involved with it you don't go back and, and fix things, you just plow forward. Um, and, you know, I said, I, I wrote my first two books that way. Um, I considered that that physical draft is a zero draft, right? And it then became um, draft one through the process of just typing it out. Um, but that was back when I was writing, you know, 80,000 word, new weird, things and I had a day job so um, I could easily take the, the, the notebook with me to work and, and uh, between tasks dash off some pages and so forth so um, yeah I think it, it definitely changes I, I'd, I'd buy into that personally technology always changes the way that you approach art um, sure. there's a great short story and again I'm going to forget the name of it but by William Gibson mm. um, that is about um uh, dream manipulation there's this machine that gets built and uh there are artists who become famous because 
they record their dreams and then then sort of mix them like you would a mixtape or a, a soundboard. And there's a line from that um, wondering how many greats of this art form have lived and died having never discovered it because the machine didn't exist yet. Mm. Um, and it's really this sort of, I mean, Gibson always does things kind of at another level, but uh, this meditation on the nature of art and whether, you know, all these artists died before the written word could be discovered that, um, I mean, I come from a part of, uh, of the South where verbal and visual and sort of storytelling, standing up and talking in front of a crowd uh, is, is a recognized art form. Um, yep. and that is a different art form than what I do. Um, but they really have their, the same kind of background. So, um, the technology definitely changes the nature of, of storytelling or storytellers, but, um, yeah. how we do it is different. Yeah. That, that's interesting. And the, and the flip side of the question, right. That's such a, such an interesting provocative question, but the flip side is, uh, you know, how many Epic poets have lived and died driving a bus or whatever, because that form is gone. And they might've been, they're a garrulous bus driver or a shop floor foreman or something when they might've once been the guy that stood up and laid out, you know, dactylic hexameters uh, and epic epithets for, you know, hours of entertainment for the tribe. Right, yeah, and the nature, you know, the market for it doesn't exist anymore. So right. they, they might've been geniuses at one point. And I mean, the way that, that bookstores are going, I kind of wonder if, <laughs> how many of us are left. So coming anyway. back. Yeah, no, I think the next generation is going to write in pure emoji speak. So I train, train yourself for that, Tim. That's the transition. Um, all right. Well, there's a little bonus chat. So let's, let's talk about Wraith Bound. This is a, this is a scary, ex, excellent, beautiful, but also sort of daunting, uh, daunting cover. Uh, it implies a world that's got uh some real monsters in it um tell, tell us about the setting if you would sure um so the magic system so i'm a cosmology guy right i start all of my projects by sitting down and figuring out the cosmology of the world um and then i go from there to figure out you know, religious systems and cultural histories. And then I begin to see plots sort of accrete around those, those, those points of tension. And then I work down the character and then I work my way back up to the actual story. Um, so anyway, um, the cosmology of the world is, comes, comes from the magic system. And the magic system is this. Um, there are eight planes of reality. There's the material plane, uh, which is the ninth realm. Uh, and then there's um, the four elemental planes and then the four, I call them the four arcane planes. It's not a very good word, but it's the one I use, um, which are life, death, uh, order, and chaos. And each of these planes has, um, I want to be clear, I'm, I'm only telling you the part that the actual characters understand because there's a lot in the world that is not revealed in, in Wraithbound, but the basic idea is um, each of these planes have denizens that are uh, native to those planes. Um, for the elemental planes, that's pretty obvious, the elementals. Um, for uh, life and death, those are the fae or fairies and um, wraiths. And the fae are every living thing that has not yet been born into the material world. And wraiths are everything that has died in the material plane. 
Um, so those populations are changing. Like eventually you're gonna run out of life <laughs> uh, and reef and fill up fill up the the world of the dead. Um, but the order the world of uh, order and chaos those are angels and demons and as we understand them creatures of order and creatures of chaos. Um, and like the creature on the on the front there, that's that's obviously a demon. Um, but I, I want to be clear, like not all chaos is bad necessarily. Um, not morally evil. Yeah, they're not morally evil. They're just chaos. Um, most nature spirits are creatures of what we would consider nature spirits are are creatures of chaos um, as well as life. There's alliances there. Um, Creatures of order are, you know, angels who want to impose order, but order has its limits. Um, there's stagnation there. There's um, there's danger there. Uh, so again, not not necessarily morally good, but that's kind of the, the line that we bring to it. There's a lot of how we think of these things as, as uh, imposing on the on the story. So there are these creatures. Um, the the mages, the magic users of the world are called spirit binders. And um, what they do is they fray the edge of their soul and, um, and they weave it into the, into the edge of a, a spirit of one of those realms and bind them together. Uh, and there are various levels of spirits. There's tiny ones, there are moats, and there's more powerful ones. Um, because that sort of primes that that um, are more and more powerful and less able to be controlled. Um, so you are then able as a spirit binder to either pull that spirit into the material world or use it as an anchor to pull yourself into into that plane. And there are a lot of implications to that. So that's the, the basis of of the, the magic system. Um, the setting for the world, uh, implies that um, the, the apocalypse has kind of already occurred. The war between order and chaos has happened kind of at a, a level higher than we're aware of. And uh, chaos essentially won. Um, and so there are all of these, there's, there's a, an area of, of order. There's a city called Fulcrum in the middle of the world. And it um, emanates order magic in order to preserve the world. And there is a bubble of chaos that exists beyond that, that is very slowly eating away at that, at that bubble of order. Uh, and things are, things are beginning to wear away and, and collapse. Um, so that's, that's sort of the setting. Our main character is way off on the edge near the, the order, um, near the order wall, it's called. Um, and they're actually in an area that is isolated from the main part of order because um, it's kind of like a radio broadcast, this thing from Fulcrum, this order magic that comes out and it goes to uh, what are called bastions, which then um, emanate their own bubble of, of, of order magic. And so if you were to see a map, it would look like a bunch of, look almost like a Mandelbrot set. Um, all of these um, overlapping circles, and uh, this particular circle where he lives, where it's called it's called Hammerwall, is the place, uh, has become isolated from the rest of the world. You can get there via airship, via zeppelin, essentially. Um, but uh, the the way that 
the 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 land bridge has been cut. Mm -hmm. So uh, uh, fan it's fantastic the way on the one hand you've got a sort of a an a priori invented um, sort of Aristotelian feeling kind of um, you know from from a priori categories building up a cosmology. But you arrive at some some old ideas, right? I mean, the idea of a of an umbellicus mundi, right? There's a there's a world navel that's holding the world together. Yeah. Um, so so if you get in an airship, by the way, airships kind of pushes us to a, a another little observation, right? Uh, what what kind of fantasy is this? Like, what what sorts of things does one see on the ground uh, as one is moving around? I, I consider this to be a flintlock fantasy. Um, hmm. It's pretty heavily influenced. Someone asked me today, what like what's what are the comps for this? And uh, I said this is Brandon Sanderson crossed with Final Fantasy. Um, it's there's there's very heavy influence from that kind of uh, you know there's technology around, but magic is so prominent that a lot of technologies don't get bothered with. Um, but there, there are muskets, and uh, I imagine a lot of the clothing is being um, more like 18th century as opposed to uh, traditional medieval, um, medieval fantasy robes and cloaks and all that. Um, so yeah, it's you know there, there are carriages, but there are also clockwork people, but there are also um, you know these these giant airships that operate on uh, antiballast and and uh, binding um, zephyrs, which are uh, aerial elementals, uh, you know, into into the woven them into the the fabric of of the ship itself um, that allows them to fly. So, yeah, there's you know, think of it as kind of like 18th century, maybe um, maybe early 19th century technology, um, but you know, but also fantasy because there are swords play a big part of it um and and the magic system is is so dominant that uh you know infantry are powerful you know you get musket lines and all that and cannon but uh it's also possible to command lightning and um cloak yourself into a into a giant earth elemental and just batter your way through a, a, a pike line so it's uh it's a combination of those two yeah uh, it's a lot of fun. So, um, if you are in one of these airships and you're flying from Hammerwall to some some other space, and you look down, like you're seeing you're seeing land, but it's been it's been taken over. It's completely subject to the rule of chaos. There's no there's no law in it. What do you see? Do you see anything? Well, so that depends on where you are. Um, but it's um, this sort of cancerous growth honestly um it's nature but it is uh, out of out of control um i think of it as you know kudzu patches and and uh just massive forests that don't don't really grow in the way that forests are supposed to grow um and again there's there's a fair amount of final fantasy influence there these kind of living lands that uh are slowly being taken over by chaos. Now, the stories about what lies beyond the order wall are a little more extreme um, because to them it's physical hell, you know. 
uh, it's it's run by demons and and uh, I don't want to spoil the story, but there are expectations for what you're going to find in the wild that are different than what you know they actually experience. Someone right. who actually walks through those territories expects to die immediately, but not necessarily. Um, entropy yeah. is very high; things fall apart. Um, you know, you go in expecting. One of the very first things that happens in the book is the main character uh, is chopping the wood for the night, and the axe falls apart because they're so close to chaos. Um, and they sort of expected the axe to last longer than it did, but things erode so quickly uh, under the influence of chaos. Things fall apart. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is interesting because, uh, notwithstanding that, when Fulcrum and Fulcrum's agents appear, you know, it's not it's not necessarily shining paladins who are greeted with rejoicing that these are the people who are here to save us, right? It's not, it's an, just to your earlier point, I guess, it's not white hats and black hats, uh, chaos and law are not evil and good. Yeah, yeah, and part of that has to do with the main character's um, relationship to to the central power. Um, yeah. They're in hiding because uh, the main character's name is Ray, and his dad was uh, a stormbinder for a, a local baron and that baron um, was involved in a, a demonic cabal and he didn't know that uh, and uh, they are forced to flee and so it's you're, you're unsure whether or not uh, the cops are are good guys or not and if you find out you find out sort of as experientially the reader does um, who they can trust and who they can't trust. So, yeah, it's definitely not like there are heroes, yay, they're superheroes that are here to save us. Uh, it's really more like you don't want to draw their attention. <laughs> yeah. uh, and if you have, then you've done something wrong or you've gotten involved with, with um, someone you shouldn't have. So, yeah, that's uh, that's interesting. So, do you feel like um, so the idea of the sort of tension between law and chaos has been a big one for Michael Moorcock, right? From mm -hmm. way back. Yep. Um, do you feel like you're at all in dialogue with that? Like, do you feel like you're sort of working with a similar idea where, um, I think Fulcrum is an interesting title, right? Fulcrum uh, is like the point of a balance. Yeah. Uh, um, <clears throat> do, do you feel like you're working in a similar space or that you're, you're answering Moorcock uh, or is this sort of just a smaller piece of your larger cosmology? Uh, this is just a smaller piece of my larger cosmology. There's no question Moorcock is, is involved, but um, I think in the sense that he's an influence of mine um, and you, you don't deny your influences. You don't just say, Oh no, I absolutely, this is entirely original. Um, you know, I'm not insane. Um, but uh there's definitely, honestly, like um, the Order of Chaos thing, I draw more from Warhammer Fantasy Battle um, okay. or the Warhammer Roleplay universe um, than, than Moorcock directly. Um, but they draw their influence from Moorcock, unquestionably. Sure. Uh, so the, my understanding of it definitely comes from, from that, that sense. Um, but it's definitely not not really uh i'm not intentionally engaging Moorcock's cosmology right. when i do this right. um i just built the magic system and then history of the cosmology uh and the order chaos stuff sort of derived from that um so yeah yeah uh interesting 
So uh, a question about spirit binders for you. So, and we need to get into like the story here, but this maybe is a segue into the story. Uh, so, um, so not everyone's a spirit binder. Um, who, how do you be, how do you determine that you're a spirit binder? Is this like an innate inborn quality or some stronger than others? How does our protagonist uh, with the disintegrating ax find out that he's a spirit binder? Uh, it is, it is a learned skill. So just like any other, this is a world where the magic is something that you have to study and learn. Um, and the city of Fulcrum is built around a, uh, the only recognized college of magic, which is called the Iron College. Um, and so there's supposed to be, um, I don't say a certification process, but uh, you're definitely uh, allowed or not allowed to be a spirit binder. Uh, and so you're not, you're supposed to be trained in it. Um, and if you're not, then that's one of the things that Justicars come after because there are risks involved. Um, if you're doing it in a way that is not acceptable, uh, you could potentially open a door into chaos and things can get bad. Um, and not just chaos, but also order. It's all about balance, right? So if you are an unlicensed flame binder, um, there are implications to being able to draw into, you know, actual inferno uh, that that has some risks. Um, so, yeah, it's there's there's it's a learned process uh, because his father was a, was a spirit binder and is trying to hide that fact now, trying to hide his history and, and um, who he is. Uh, Ray has access to he, he was originally like he was raised um, in a noble tradition of learning spirit binding his destiny was supposed to be a spirit binder even a storm binder he was supposed to take his dad's position uh, and he began the early classes in that and then had to flee uh, and had to stop his education but it's still his passion and so he begins to train himself uh, which is extremely dangerous uh, and goes terribly wrong uh, if it didn't go terribly wrong there wouldn't be a story right there wouldn't be uh, interesting things happening but um, yeah, he starts by training himself. His father strictly forbids it. Um, his family uh, is always worried about him, you know, learning uh, these things and still showing interest and stuff. Um, but they don't stop him. So uh, yeah, it's it's a it's a learned skill. Yeah. So in theory, anybody could. Someone might have more or less talent, but anybody could could learn it. Yeah, it's like a piano. Like a piano. Yeah. So, okay, so uh, by the way, we do see this, there, there's a prologue, we get the opening, we, we don't see uh, the full ramifications of it, right, in good prologue style, but we, we, see, the, we see the beginning of the story, our entry point is the, is the flight of Ray's family when, when he's a child, and then we, we cut to them living in Stormwall. Um, tell us more about Ray. I, one of the things that I think is interesting to me is, um, this book, uh, do do you agree with me that sort of epic epic fantasy is sort of the big category of the book? Is that yeah, that that was the goal. It's so, intentionally epic. Yeah. Now, one of the things that's interesting to me is that uh, epic fantasy often is very sincere and sort of solemn, and your protagonist is is, is carries a little bit different flavor. You know, he's sometimes a little snarky, a little, he can be like a little mouthier, you know. Mm -hmm. um, 
tell us tell us about Ray and and uh, uh, why you know why why should we like him? Oh, you shouldn't know. He's a jerk. No, uh, he's a good guy. Um, Ray is a very sincere uh, in the sense that he wants he's he's doing what he's doing to try to help his family. Um, that is his his central motivation. Um, but also, um, he's trying to do it to help himself because he has this idea of what his life should be and what his family's life should be and what sort of honors his father should should have uh, in society. And instead he's working a farm out in the middle of nowhere and he doesn't like that. Um, and so he'll kind of do anything to, to get his family back to that stage, even if it's illegal. Um, so he's, like you say, a kind of snarky dude. Um, kind of a, uh, I don't want to say miscreant, but certainly willing to bend the law if it, if it suits his purpose. Uh, law in the capital L sense, because that's the kind of world that we, that we live in here. Um, but his, you know, his family means a lot to him. Um, his sister is one of the main characters in the book. Uh, and he kind of starts off in an, I don't want to say an antagonistic uh, relationship with his sister, but certainly um, pointed relationship with his sister, and uh, that the development between the two of them over over time is, I think, um, one of the more interesting things about about him. So, um, yeah, it's Ray's story, but really, it's both of their stories. It's kind of the family, the family story. Yeah, uh, I want to hear that, but first, let me just let me just push a little further on this question. So. I mean, it feels like, I, I guess, I guess I'll offer an observation, you can respond to it or not, but maybe to some extent, his sort of snarkiness is a, is a response to the tension he feels between what he thinks ought to be and what actually is, right? Like he needs some kind of irony as almost like a, like a, an immune system response to, uh, you know, my parents were good people. My father's supposed to be this, you know, important spirit binder. And we're in basically this isolated in the sticks, and uh, um, and maybe maybe that's why we have this kind of. Uh, yeah, yeah. There's definitely um, it's tricky because he's he's a sarcastic character, but you don't want to take that so far that it, be, it becomes unlikable. I mean, yeah. he is in some ways he doesn't believe in value, right? Like he doesn't he he's not just a nihilist. Right. Yeah. 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 Exactly. Uh, there's. It's a dark book, but it's not a grim dark book because I, I want you to actually like the characters and care about what happens to them. And that's not really how grim dark usually functions. Um, it's, um, he, he is having, he's having a kind of a crisis and the way that he deals with that crisis is through humor uh, in a lot of cases uh, and kind of this cynical, sarcastic response. Um, but He's not bitter. Um, he's on, he's on, there are versions of him that could become bitter with time. Uh, and he's sort of valiantly stri striving against that. Uh, and his sister especially is trying to drag him back from that in her, in her own way, uh, in her own earnest sort of, um, you know, response. Uh, you know, he, she sees him doing things that she knows will disappoint their parents and is trying to drag him back from that 
that thing. But in his mind, he's doing these things for their parents, for the family, um, and is trying to, you know, maybe he's making a mistake in doing that, but sometimes we have to make our own mistakes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So tell us more about the sister then and about, you know, kind of the, the general, the tension between them and the, and a little, I mean, you was touching that some, but maybe a little more and kind of the direction that that goes. Yeah. So the sister's name is ridiculous. It's, it's La or Lalette. Um, and so La's, um, La sees herself as her brother's guardian in a lot of ways um, because she sees him making mistakes and is like, if someone doesn't step in, you're going to really screw up and, and sort of ruin your, uh, ruin your life and ruin our lives and, and you know, get us in trouble. Um, she's just as discontent as him in the situation, but has decided to make the best of it as opposed to um, I'm going to break everything and, and find and pick my pick up the pieces and, and find my way out. Um, she's certainly a more loving character uh, than than Ray as far as um, taking care of people is concerned, uh, and sees herself kind of as not only Ray's Ray's guardian but like the person who's keeping the family together in a lot of ways, um, and so. Uh, La is a, she's a mechanical genius. Like she's the one who's doing all the, the dumb hard work around the farm. Uh, Ray is, Ray lets his cynicism get to him and, and is for like, you know, I just chores and I want to get, get them done and get out of here. Whereas La is very much committed on, on like getting the family's farm and, and succeeding and um, getting them through the winter and, and the realities of, she's more of a reality-based person. Like they're both problem solvers um, and they're really solving the same problems. They just approach them in different ways. He's much more of an idealist than she is. She's more of the realist, the practical, um, you know, solution person, uh, which, you know, when they're presented with the same problems, the way that they approach them differently is, is kind of part of what makes their interaction interesting. Uh, and they begin to face really large problems uh, and uh, resolve them in different ways. So I see a lot of law, especially once book two come, once we get around to, to book two, um, I have a, a path for her that I'm, I'm interested in exploring, so. Yeah, very exciting. Um, now there's a third, uh, I think there are, there are more than three sort of central characters, but as a third sort of most central character, I guess is the way I think about it. Uh, kind of a, a friend who comes along on their journeys, right? Tell, tell us about that character. And then, and then we should hear a little bit about the, like the story, what actually happens and, and what sets them sure. off on the quest. Um, so the third is Mach, Machi Rem. Um, and he is, uh, he's a rough, he's a, he's a Lieutenant of a small criminal gang that, um, that Ray gets involved with. And uh, he sees the Kelthanas family as kind of a curiosity uh, because they, you know, they obviously don't belong in this small town. And um, he's, he's a very brutal person. Um, he's, he's the muscle of this gang. He's a Lieutenant, but uh, he's also in some ways the most caring person of all of them. Um, because he sees himself as, um, you know, 
he sees these two kids essentially as being kind of idiots uh, and, uh, you know, in need of protecting in a physical and violent way that, that neither of them is really capable of outside of, outside of them. Um, you know, they're, the three of them are really um, the three primary aspects of, of the body. Uh, oh, interesting. Maki's the body, um, the muscle, the physical. Um, La is, is the mind and Ray is the spirit. And that, that trinity, that, that group, grouping, uh, triumvirate, uh, really sort of unwinds in, in the whole, that's like the theme behind the entire world, uh, is this, the interaction between those three things. And so that's why Maki is there. He's, I needed somebody who was, who was the physical force. Uh, and, you know, again, the way that they solve problems is different. Maki's a puncher. Um, as opposed to, uh, you know, Ray will try to charm or magic his way out of things. And um, the more practical Lalette is, is trying to find ways to get around in a reasonable manner. Um, so yeah, that's, that's the, the three parts. Yeah, very, very cool. So, so what's the quest? What happens? I mean, look, the, the, in a sense, there's, you've already told us the family gets disrupted, right? But they've reached a kind of a stasis where the children are both kind of young adults and they're doing chores and going to inherit the farm here in Stormwall. What happens to move them beyond that? I mean, I don't know how much I want to spoil, but um, the basic idea, the inciting incident is that Ray tries to bind a, a storm elemental to his soul and he succeeds, except he doesn't bind a storm elemental. He binds a wraith and not just a wraith, but the wraith of a murdered mage. Um, the mage was also a stormbinder, which is why he's confused at first. He thinks he's bound this, the storm elemental. What he's actually done is bound the remnant of the storm elemental that was uh, bound by this, this dead mage. And that causes a lot of trouble because um, the people who are responsible for the death of this mage are uh, responsible for a lot of other stuff too. And so they begin to pursue Ray to silence him. Um, and there was, it gets into the cosmology again, but uh, this Wraith was being hidden for very specific reasons um, from the larger world. And now that Ray has bound it, they need to, to make sure that, that the knowledge of that dead man is not is not disseminated into the world. And so they begin to pursue him. Uh, they have to flee their hometown. Um, they, make, they, they meet friends along the way. Uh, they meet allies, they uh, make enemies. Uh, and uh, Ray sort of has to figure out who the Wraith is and why he was being murdered and why he's being pursued. It very much is a figure things out as you go along kind of uh, kind of thing with a, a world as complicated and um, layered as as Wraithbound is uh, you really kind of have to peel that onion slowly uh, and kind of from the inside right so you're you're doing reveals as you go along and you have to do it uh, in a layered manner so that the reader isn't overwhelmed but also is learning things as they go along and learning things in an interesting way so that they keep reading. Um, 
my goal, like a lot of fantasy action, exposition, action, exposition. I am a exposition as the action goes along kind of guy. Uh, I want to dole out information as, as things go on. So it's, it's a pacey book. It's a kind of a plot driven book. Um, but the world kind of unfolds as you go along and you discover things as you go. Um, so hopefully readers will be like, oh, that thing that I didn't think was important suddenly is, you know, uh, kind of, kind of reveal. Yeah, it's a book that rewards paying attention to it as you read. And we see, and we see, uh, so we see him struggling, yeah, this confusion over, is he a Stormbinder or not? Oh, he's actually, he is Wraith-bound. He's bound a Wraith to himself. He's a Wraith-binder. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, but we, we see other binders who, who work with life. We see, we see angels and demons before we're done. Um, in a sort of a, a hard magic Sandersonian kind of way, the magic system itself and insights into the cosmology play into some of the climactic scenes. Um, the family mystery is relevant. It's not just backstory, right? It's not, it's not an accident that this is who was having the adventure. So it's, it's got a very good, uh, sorry, I should be interviewing you, but I, my <laughs> comment, right, having read it, uh, that it's got a very uh, satisfying feel to the way the whole thing uh, unfolds. Um, and it's getting great reviews, by the way. Congratulations. Yeah, I'm, I'm very happy with the reviews. I'm very happy with um, the way it's been received so far. It only came out yesterday. And so right. uh, a lot of people who were anticipating it um, haven't finished it yet. You'll so, the book right now. Yeah, yeah, they're in process. So uh, I'm, I'm very curious to see how, how certain people react to it. But um, yeah, like it's a, it's a book where there are nothing, hap nothing is in that book by, by accident. Like, um, even if there are things that seem coincidental or circumstantial, uh, it's all very intentional. Um, going back to, you know, the, the creation of Fulcrum and, and sort of the history behind this world, uh, it's all sort of knitted together. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's a book that was a lot of fun to write um, and a world that was a lot of fun to create uh, and, and uh yeah i'm 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 very satisfied with the book myself but that's sort of a rare thing for me i usually get to the end of a book and i'm like almost almost got there Next um, but yeah this time i'm i'm really very happy with the way things have come out so that's uh fantastic so are we uh is there is there anything else that, that we should have talked about that we haven't is there anything else you particularly want to share about uh your setting or your story or characters um, the only other character that's really super significant is Estiv Cohn, who is kind of the Obi-Wan Kenobi figure here. He's the mentor um, because, you know, there, there's a certain amount of Ray has to learn how to be a spirit binder that has to go on. And so uh, I've always found that that mentor character um, is a critical part of this kind of story, but is always sort of the same. And I really wanted to do something significantly different with that. So uh, yeah, I, I think that I've, I've done that with Estev. Uh, he's, he's a lot of fun, but he's also, um, he's a very light character. He's kind of a goof, um, not really a clown, but he's very, 
sir, I do not walk if I don't have to walk, you know, kind of guy. And they're going on a walking journey, which is sort of the joke. Uh, he's, he's always inconvenienced, always uh, mildly miserable, and yet still drags himself through uh, with these bloody children. So, uh, yeah, he's, he's, a, he's a fun guy. Yeah. So, uh, okay, I'm going to ask questions here. You can, you can choose to pass. Uh, all right. Okay. <laughs> are there are there matter binders? Are there is there an antimatter? Mm, uh, so, um, yes, uh, I have mentioned that there are three parts to um, to the party. There's spirit, there is body, and there is um, mind. Um, there are three parts to the magic system as well. And all we've seen so far is spirit binding. Um, so there is, a, there's what I call blood forging, which is um, another form. And then there's uh, mind forging, uh, which I haven't got a good name for yet, but um, there, that is all part of, part of it. Um, there is, there's what you would quit, you could call matter binding that's already in the book. Um, I call it bond writing um, or, um, yeah, bond writing, because uh, you can bind these spirits to physical things as well. Um, that's done in the book. Um, there's a group of people who have um, death-locked swords, which are, or spears, which are um, spears where the spearhead has been, the, the realm of death has been bound into it, um, and it makes them particularly dangerous. And that's one of, one of the things that I try to do with a magic system is make it uh, particularly, um, it's not just the mages who have power. Like uh, one of the reasons that there are muskets is because you can bind the, the realms of spirit into the, into the musket balls. And so you can fire a shot that has been bound into the spirit of, of earth, uh, which after it's fired, it brings the realm of earth into the shot and makes it really heavy. And so when it hits, it hits with an enormous amount of force or you bind it to fire and it blows up, you know, that kind of thing. Um, so that's kind of matter binding, but it's not as you're at, like, as, as you're, you're not binding to rock or kind of, I mean, that's what, that's what the elemental binding is. You're binding into stone. You can bind your body into into stone and become hard, you know, or something like that. Um, so, yes and no, I guess is the answer. Yeah, yeah. Okay, interesting. So that implies we might get some sequels. I mean, I jokingly say I've got twenty books in my mind, but it's not a joke. Like I've got um, the there's there are things that are in this book that imply things about the cosmology that let you know that there's more here than just the ordered world. You know, there's more than just fulcrum and its, and its bounds. Um, one of the cool things about, about fulcrum that I didn't really explain, uh, fulcrum, the city is built into what's called a world tree, mm -hmm. which is um, when, the, when the material plane, uh, when the realm of life found its way to the material plane, like when the material plane was created, there was no life. Uh, and the way that things began to live in the material plane was the Fae um, 
became aware of the material plane and decided they were going to go to it. And so they built these giant arcs, right? Uh, and traveled through the aether or however you want to think of it into the material plane. And when they reached the material plane, those arcs became giant trees. And so each of those trees was the origin point for life in the world. Um, and fulcrum is just one of them. Uh, but that is kind of implied in the, in the, in the book, but not explicitly said. And uh, one of the things that I, I don't know if it's actually in Wraithbound or not, but um, the tree that Fulcrum is built on is, has died. Um, and so uh, is no longer growing, no longer a source of life, of life magic. Um, and uh, Estev is a life binder and has sort of dedicated his life to trying to um, regrow one of the world trees. So there's obviously a lot of other mythologies in there, but um, yeah. Yeah. Well, again, this is a very old and resonant idea that the the tree of the center of the world, which is the cosmic axis, right, is binds multiple levels of existence together, whether, you know, this is an idea that's been, you know, Yggdrasil in Norse mythology, but even like the uh, Temple Menorah was uh, seen by some writers to have uh, cosmological significance. That this is a very yeah. resonant. Yeah, I, I'm not... I'm not subtle in the fact that I draw from a lot of mythologies. I mean, I, we mentioned earlier the the Hallowed War series. Um, that the three uh, influences for the Hallowed War series were the integration of paganism into medieval Christianity, um, the the particular way that Mesoamericans approach the idea of good and evil balance, and um, Shintoism. So. Um, and then I threw them together and made, you know, made a nightly adventure out of it. Um, so I always draw from um, kind of deep mythology uh, when I'm when I'm doing my cosmology. I'm not I'm not working from you know first materials. I'm making stuff up as I go along, but uh, I always want to kind of draw in from from my fairly extensive reading in, in, in mythology. That's that's my influence. So sure, sure. Well, fantastic. Well. Um... What are you working on now? Are you working on a sequel to this? You're working on something else? What do you, what's your projects? These um, I am writing the third Night Watch book, um, I, which is currently titled The Eccentrics, and it's kind of, uh, there's a steampunk team. That's, that's kind of the pitch. Um, I, am, I have a contract for a game company that I'm, I'm trying to finish that was due a while ago, uh, and I'm... I'm outlining the second Wraithbound book. And then I've also got um, other stuff in the Wraithbound cosmology that I've written like three novellas for that might become chapters, I don't know. Um, but that series is called, um, it's sometimes called Bladecaster. The name of the novel is, is The Language of Swords. Uh, and it has to do with sort of the deep history of the world of, of um, Wraithbound. So. Yeah. What's your, do you have a working title for the Wraithbound sequel yet? No. Um, maybe Wraithblade, maybe Wraithborn. Um, the third book is Wraithbreaker, but okay. I don't have the second title in my brain yet. I've been calling it Wraithborn, but the problem is there's this other book called Mistborn that you might have heard of. No, I, I don't know one. No, I don't know that guy is. The hack, uh, probably. Yeah. So I, I, I want to avoid like the obvious 
you know, I don't want them to make a mistake. I want, I want people to know that they're reading something else. I, I don't know if someone mistakenly bought your book. Uh, yeah, it's okay. That doesn't hurt you too bad. It's, you don't want the mistake to go the other way. <laughs> yeah, that's unlikely to occur. I meant to buy this Tim Akers book and this Sanderson guy got in the way. I don't know what's happening. Uh, good happen. Good happen. Um, all right. Well, hey, once again, the book is uh, Wraithbound out now from Bain Books in trade paper and in ebook. Uh, hey, Tim Akers, thanks very much for taking the time to talk to us. Thank you. And now we bring you Timothy Zahn's Cobra. Earth's only hope was the Cobras. The colony world's Adirondack and Silvern fell to the troughed forces almost without a struggle. Outnumbered and on the defensive, Earth made a desperate decision. It would attack the aliens not from space, but on the ground, with forces the troughs did not even suspect. Thus were created the Cobras, a guerrilla force whose weapons were surgically implanted, invisible to the unsuspecting eye, yet undeniably deadly. But power brings temptation, and not all the Cobras could be trusted to fight for Earth alone. Johnny Moreau would learn the uses and abuses of his special abilities and what it truly meant to be a Cobra. Johnny exhaled slowly. Another minor victory and as emotionally unsatisfying as all such political wins seemed to be. Perhaps he thought it was because no opponent was ever fully vanquished in this form of combat. They always got back up out of the dust, a little smarter, and often a little madder each time. And Johnny would now be spending the next three months heading straight for Ray's political domain, while Ray himself had those same months to plan whatever revenge he chose. <laughs> so much for victory. Grimacing, Johnny punched again for Almo Pyre. His order halting the ship's servicing would have to be rescinded. There was a great deal of work involved in turning over his duties on such short notice, and in the end Johnny wound up with far less time than he'd wanted to tell his family goodbye. It added one more shade of pain to the already Pyrrhic victory, especially as he had no intention of letting Ray know how he felt. The worst part, of course was that there was very little aboard ship to occupy his thoughts. On the original trip to Aventine a quarter century earlier, there had been fellow colonists to meet, as well as mag cards of information compiled by the survey teams to be studied. Here, even with the fourteen business passengers Ray was bringing home, the ship carried only thirty-six people, none of whom Johnny was especially interested in getting to know. And if the ship carried any useful information on the impending war, no one was saying anything about it. So for the first couple of weeks, Johnny did little except sit alone in his cabin, reread the colony's data he'd brought to show the Central Committee, and brood. Until one morning he awoke with an unexpected, almost preternatural alertness. It took him several minutes to figure out on a conscious level what his subconscious had already realized. During ship's night they had passed from no man's space into the troughed corridor. The old pattern of being in hostile territory evoked long-buried cobra training, and as the politician yielded to the warrior, Johnny unexpectedly found his helpless feelings giving way to new determination. For the time being, at least, the political situation had become a potentially military one, and military situations were almost never completely hopeless. He began in the accepted military way 
learning the territory. For hours at a time he toured the mansana, getting to know everything about it and compiling long mental lists of strengths, weaknesses, quirks, and possibilities. He learned the names and faces of each of the fourteen crewers and six marines, evaluating as best he could how they would react in a crisis. Doing the same with the passengers actually proved a bit easier. With the same excess of free time he himself had, they were eager to spend time with him, playing games or just talking. More than once Johnny wished he'd brought Callie Halloran along. But even without the other's knack at informal psychoanalysis, he was soon able to divide the passengers into the old float-slash-freeze categories, those who could probably deal with and adapt to a crisis and those who couldn't. Heading the former were two executive field reps Johnny soon learned to consider friends as well as potential allies. Drew Koraheim, a pharmaceutical company executive whose face and dry humor reminded him vaguely of Alona Linder, and Rando Harmon, whose interests lay in rare metals and occasionally Drew Koraheim. For a while, Johnny wondered if Drew had latched onto him to use as a partial shield against Harmon's advances. But as it became clear that those advances were entirely non-serious, he realized the whole thing was an elaborate game designed to give the participants something to concentrate on besides the mental picture of silent troughed warships. And when his survey was complete, it was back to waiting. He played chess with Drew and Harmon, kept abreast of the ship's progress, and, alone late at night, tried to come up with some way to keep the war from happening, or at least to keep it from happening to Aventine, and wondered if and when the troughts would move against the Mensana. Twenty-five light-years from Dominion space, they finally did. That was another installment in Timothy Zahn's Cobra, and that's it for the podcast. Thanks, as always, to Audible.com and podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz. Praise, thanks, and gratitude to Tim Akers, and good night, Tony Daniel, wherever you are. This is David F. Shirod coming to you from a soundproof bunker somewhere deep in the heart of Texas. Join us here next week at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy, and keep reaching for the stars.